1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi,
2: I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, January the 14th on CBC Radio. has been another week of flaring tensions in the Middle East, and that's where we're spending our first hour today, starting with a primer on the U.S. and U.K. strikes on Houthi rebel targets in Yemen, and then a breakdown of the legal case against Israel that was presented at the International Court of Justice. Artificial intelligence will power our second hour when I speak with the so-called godmother of AI about the potential she believes the tech has if we put humanity at its heart. And if you're hunting for a job, listen up as we look at the potential pitfalls of AI in the workplace and how these tools are helping decide who gets hired, promoted, and fired. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. Tensions around and about the Middle East have reached new levels over the past few days, with growing concerns about a broadening conflict, something that many contend is already happening. The latest escalation is in Yemen, where yesterday the U.S. attacked a Houthi radar station, and that comes just a day after the American and British militaries launched a round of airstrikes inside Yemen that killed at least five people. Since the October 7th attacks in Israel, Houthi rebels have been attacking vessels in the Red Sea as a show of support to Hamas. Those attacks have been causing major disruptions to one of the world's busiest shipping routes. And the Iranian-backed group is vowing to keep up its attacks despite the moves by Western militaries. Thomas Junot is a University of Ottawa Associate Professor of Public and International Affairs with a focus on the Middle East. Tomah, it's good to have you back with us. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So seemingly everything sort of changed Thursday evening our time when the U.S. and U.K. carried out dozens of airstrikes in Yemen, they say, aimed at Houthi rebel strongholds and installations. So the Houthis are now promising a, quote, strong and effective response. Tell me, what are the Houthis capable of carrying
3: out? The Houthis are capable of carrying out significant retaliation and sometimes uh, groups bluster and bluff. But in this case, I think there's good reason to believe that the Houthis will at some point and probably not in the distant future uh, carry out that promise of retaliation. And that can mean a lot of different things. The Houthis now, they have shown that they have the ability to significantly disrupt Maritime traffic in the Red Sea, which is one of the most important maritime choke points for the global economy, they have shore to sea missiles, they have amphibious assault teams, they have naval mines, they've also developed drone boats, so fairly small boats, fishing boats that are packed with explosives and then that they can, uh, you know, guide them remotely to crash into shipping vessels. Another concern is that beyond shipping, uh, which they have done so far, they could target American military bases or military assets in the region, in the Red Sea, but maybe also in the Persian Gulf. They have missiles and drones that can do that. They could also decide to hit Israel again with missiles and drones, which they did in the fall, if you recall. And another thing that is worrying a lot of people in the region, and and they may not choose this one, but would be to hit Saudi Arabia or the UAE directly Hmm. uh, because they are viewed by the Houthis as basically vassal states of, of the U.S.,
2: Okay, we'll talk more about the Houthis in just a moment, but I want to talk about the timing of uh, what the Americans and British militaries did. So they came these these initial strikes on Thursday. I mean, it was the same day that U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken finished his latest tour of the Middle East. He said he was there to tamp down prospects of a widening conflict and said, "Look, I had really good discussions with leaders of various countries." And then, not a day later, the U.S. is launching airstrikes in Yemen. So, why do you think why and why now? Because the Houthis have been. Doing Doing these attacks in the Red Sea for three months now.
3: The Houthis had been doing these attacks in the Red Sea for three months. They've been doing these attacks for six years, right? They've done a few of them in the late 2010s too, and not on a large scale, but just enough to send the message that they could do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, before the war in Gaza started on, on October 7th, there was no doubt for Yemen watchers that at some point in the future, the Houthis would do this. And that it would represent a major problem for the global economy, not just for the U.S., not just for Saudi Arabia, but for the global economy, including China and Asian countries and Europe and Canada, for that matter. Uh, So when the war in Gaza started on October 7th, that gave them a pretext. But not everything started from the Houthis perspective on October 7th. Why on Thursday night from the U.S. and U.K. perspective, it had been building up uh, and, and the Houthis being who the Houthis are, which is a fairly radical group driven by a really radical ideology, there was no reason to think that they would stop and that warnings by the US or UK or anybody else would not work. Now, you know, a lot of people are answering to this point, well, the Houthis are asking for a ceasefire in Gaza. Why don't we just get a ceasefire and then we'll stop? Theoretically, that's true. But there's two problems with that argument. One of them is As much as many of us would like it, there will not be a ceasefire in Gaza, at least in the short term. So the problem in the Red Sea continues. And in any case, the Houthis will not stop after a ceasefire. I mean, they may stop on the day after a ceasefire, but the threat to Red Sea shipping Hmm. is not dependent on Gaza. It is there for the foreseeable future. And that's a big problem.
2: Okay, so if the motivations for the Houthis is not the war between Israel and Hamas, what are its motivations?
3: Well, the, the motivation is partly the war in Gaza, or at least that's the spark, that's the catalyst. And, you know, Houthi ideology uh, is is complex, it's extremist in many ways, but one of the pillars is... A very harsh anti-Israel position, and that's been core to to Houthi doctrine since since the beginning a few decades ago. But it's not the only thing. To, to say that the Houthis are only acting on the basis of defending Gaza against the genocide is is really a misunderstanding of of who the Houthis are and what their objectives are. And you are seeing that that point being made in the in the media and on social media quite a bit. They have other objectives. Uh, they have domestic objectives first of all. The Houthis have pretty much won the civil war in North Yemen. Uh, They are dominant. Nobody can challenge their power in the North, but they're still vulnerable. They, especially as Yemen moves slowly into a bit of a post-war phase, the economy is abysmal and they are very bad managers of the economy. So mobilizing pro-Palestinian feeling, even if it is for cynical purposes, helps them shore up their domestic base. Beyond uh, Yemen itself, the Houthis, having won the, or de facto won the civil war, at least in North Yemen, maybe not in the south and the east, they want to establish themselves as a regional power. They want hmm. to establish themselves as a regional player aligned with Iran. So that's why you're seeing them hit Israel, hit the Red Sea and so on.
2: Okay, Thomas Junot, I know you know a lot about Yemen and have for years. Most of us don't. So I just want to back up to kind of pick up on what you're saying about the evolution of the Houthis here. You know, this is an armed group, as you say, that controls most of Yemen, including the capital Sana'a. They've been around since um, the 90s. And they kind of, my understanding is they went from this sort of scrappy ragtag group of rebels to controlling now most of Yemen and being embroiled in this decades-long civil war with a military coalition against Saudi Arabia. How, How did this evolution happen?
3: So uh, that's a that's a good question. Uh, just to take a couple steps back in Yemen, about 60 or 65 percent of the population is Sunni and about 35 or 40 percent of the population is Shia Muslim. They are not the same Shia Muslims as the vast majority of Arab Shia Muslims uh, we see in Iraq, in, in Iraq, in Lebanon or non-Arab Shia in Iran. They are Zaidi Muslim, which is another branch of Shia Islam that is found almost only in Yemen. So in the 80s and 90s, uh, a a group of Zaidi Muslims centered around the Houthi family, so that's where the name comes from, started protesting uh, against their social, their cultural, their political, their religious marginalization at the hands of the state, the Yemeni state. That Uh, escalated to the point that in the 2000s it became an armed rebellion. But as you said early on, it was a, a small militia, poorly armed uh, but because the Yemeni state was itself very weak, this is a very poor country, was back then, is even more today because of the war. They were able to develop slowly by really feeding on these widespread grievances in the northwest and in the fairly remote northwestern Western corner of the country. At some point, they caught the eye of Iran, uh, which started establishing limited ties with them. Um, but when the Arab Spring hit Yemen in 2011, uh, and the, the you know the government nearly collapsed, the Houthis continued expanding. Iran really saw an opportunity to develop a foothold in northern Yemen at the southern border of Saudi Arabia, which is obviously key for Iran. Iran and Saudi being big rivals, so it continued developing these these relations. 2014, as the Yemeni state is is basically collapsing, the Houthis seize the capital, uh, and that's really the expansion of their power. That's really where they attract a lot more attention. And then, last point in 2015, Saudi Arabia, seeing Houthi power growing, seeing Iran Houthi ties growing, decides to launch a military intervention to try to dislodge them. Uh, but almost nine years later, that intervention has abysmally failed because not only are the Houthis still there, they are far more powerful today than they were in 2015.
2: This is excellent context to, for all of us to understand what's happening today. You talk about the Houthis starting as family and then growing. Like, How many fighters are we talking about? What's its internal structure? Does it have a political wing
3: uh, so that's a good question, and we're starting to understand the Houthis better and better. And and one key point to mention here is that Houthi governance is extremely repressive. Uh, it is absolutely not transparent. There is no space for dissent at all in in the. Portions of Yemen that the Houthis occupy, they occupy, they, they that they control, which is, you know, maybe half a bit less of half of the country geographically, but in terms of population, it's about sixty percent. Uh, they are a very unified movement. They have managed to establish a strong military structure, a strong political structure, um, with some inspiration from the, the the governance structure of the Islamic Republic of Iran. But these parallels shouldn't be taken too far but there's a political wing there's a military wing how many fighters hard to say 1 to 200,000 uh, wow. are numbers that you see because it it's not like they have a military with clearly defined units and a report on plans and priorities published at the end of the year with all of the statistics it's uh, there there there's you know there's armed group armed you know units that fall under their command. They have absorbed significant portions of the Yemeni military from before the war. They have made deals with tribal militias, of which there's there have always been a lot in northern Yemen, uh, that fight alongside the Houthis, some of them formally absorbed, some of them more as allies. They've absorbed a lot of the security services of of Yemen from before the war, so it's it's a really complex coalition uh, that is led by the Houthi family, which holds a lot of the key positions, and some of their original allies hold some of the other positions. Um, and 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 that you know, just one last point I'll, I'll mention is the the unity that the Houthis have been able to build in the regions they control in just a few years which is really the key here because the internationally recognized government, which is mm. now mostly in exile or in Aden in the south or elsewhere in the country, is extremely fragmented, disunited, incompetent in its in its administration. And as much as, as we've mentioned, Iranian assistance has been key to the rise of the Houthis, the relative weakness of their domestic adversaries has been equally important.
2: Mm. I want to ask you more about... Um uh, Iran, because the Houthis say it's part of this so-called axis of resistance against Israel, the the U.S., much of the West, along with Hezbollah and Hamas, who are also backed by Iran. So the Houthis are often, uh, Thomas Junod, described as Iranian proxies. Is is that a fair assessment? Are they Iranian
3: proxies? Well, the the word proxy is a bit like uh, a few other words like terrorism and so on that has become so politicized, and people view it in so different ways that it's it's hard to to say, I'd rather to have a more serious conversation than just throwing labels around that are meant to tar negatively or positively uh, to, to explain the command and control and the influence and the nature of the relationship between Iran and the Houthis. The key point here is that the Houthis have emerged as one of the top three partners of Iran in the region with Hamas, with Hezbollah, and now the Houthis. These three groups receive a lot of Iranian support. They would not have anywhere near the power they have today without Iranian support. Hamas existed before. It developed relations with Iran. It was not created by Iran, but Hamas would not have been able to do the attack it did on October 7th without Iranian support. You can say the same thing about the Houthis. The Houthis existed for several years before started receiving significant Iranian support, right? So they're not a creation of Iran. That being said, the a lot of the missile and drone capabilities, a lot of the intelligence that they have, a lot of the uh, you know, uh, other weapons that they have, even rel- less advanced stuff like AK-47s and mines, a lot of that comes from Iran. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Uh, so it's it's. is it a proxy relationship? It depends what your definition of proxy hmm. is. Iran, they're not puppets. And that's a mistake that a lot of people make. Iran doesn't tell them what to do, but they work together very closely.
2: So that leads to this question, because yesterday uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, Mm. talked to reporters outside the White House and said uh, that he called Iran and uh, to talk about the Houthis and uh, to to talk about this. So, so if Iran really has no real power, and maybe I'm using the wrong words there, but over the Houthis, like, does it make a difference that the President of the United States calls up Iran and says, hey, tell those Houthi guys to calm down a bit?
3: Uh, well, it, it does make a difference. Uh, there's, but there's two, there's two links here that are, that are very weak. One, will the Iranians listen to Joe Biden? No. And two, do, does Iran issue orders to the Houthis? No. But the, the Iranians and the Houthis, often with Hezbollah in Beirut, by the way, they have a joint operations room in Beirut and Lebanon where they do a lot of their coordination. Uh, they will sit down and they will strategize and they will talk about tactics and, and specific operations. So if there, these media reports that the, the Americans sent a private warning to Iran to try to get Iran to um, get the Houthis to, to tone it down in the Red Sea, that message will go from Iran to the Houthis. Will it work? As of now, I don't think so. I mean, the reading for a lot of us watching Yemen is that the Houthis are feeling very much emboldened right now. Uh, They won the civil war in Yemen. They feel uh, rightly so that they're on top, that nobody domestically in Yemen can touch them. Uh, And they feel that the U.S. probably doesn't have the stomach for a long, large-scale campaign of airstrikes against the Houthis. And as long as it's limited targeted airstrikes, the ability of the U.S. to do damage to the Houthis is probably limited.
2: Yemen is one of the world's poorest countries. The humanitarian situation inside is awful. As you said, the, you know, internationally recognized government has been displaced. They don't really have much control or power. So how should toma, toma uh, the international community be weighing its priorities right now when it comes
3: to Yemen? That's a great question and and the uh, first of all, I'm 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 I think it's good that you mentioned the humanitarian dimension because that gets forgotten. Way too often. And that's been the tragedy of Yemen for a long time, not just in the last 48 hours or the last few weeks. The humanitarian situation in the country is an absolute catastrophe. A large majority of the population is food insecure. A significant proportion is reliant on humanitarian assistance. And humanitarian assistance is severely lacking because of insecurity, uh, because of very difficult geography. This is a very mountainous country, because of very poor infrastructure, because the Houthis have been manipulating and stealing a lot of humanitarian assistance, which is also. an important point to mention so there's that right and and we cannot forget about that even though we too often do what should we do we the international community the us the un and so on the problem is that there's no good option at this point and and part of the 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 reason for that problem is what you mentioned and what i mentioned three minutes ago the very the, the weakness of the internationally recognized government the houthis have won this war because their domestic rivals have been so bad uh, so weak, so corrupt, so incompetent. So right now, uh, a lot of people are mentioning as an idea, can we try to defeat the Houthis? The answer to that in the short to midterm is no. There's no there's no alternative for that. Can it be a long-term project to try to reboost uh, the internationally recognized government? In theory, maybe. In practice, good luck uh, because it is so poorly led and and so on can there be more humanitarian assistance to yemen there should be um because it, you know pledges have historically not been met by the international community but again it goes back to the whole questions about security and geography and corruption and and manipulation and so on so at this point it's very difficult to be anything else than than pessimistic hmm.
2: meanwhile the Attacks in the Red Sea continue, um, which is putting, you know, economic pressures, the price of oil, um, supply chains are all at risk now, aren't they?
3: Yes. And and the, the, the challenge here for the U.S., and, and this is exactly what I meant when I was saying that there's no good options, um, even if in the short term, and I'm doubtful, but you say I'm wrong. And in the short term or beyond the short term, <clears throat> sorry, in the midterm, the U.S. succeeds in establishing some kind of new deterrence balance with the Houthis, and they stop their attacks on the Red Sea. In the short term, that's a win for the global economy. It's not just a win for the US. It's a win for the global economy. And that's an important point to make. Almost everybody in the world, except you know North Korea and Iran has a stake in this. China does, Malaysia, South Korea, and so on. The problem is that even if this stops in the short to midterm, the Houthis will have shown to the world. To their adversaries, the US, Saudi Arabia in particular, that they have both the capability and willingness to do this. And that gives them, for the foreseeable future, the ability to hold the global economy because the Red Sea, again, is one of the most crucial maritime choke points. They have the ability to hold the global economy hostage. If one, two, three years from now, they want something from Saudi Arabia or from the U.S. in whatever political negotiation context there could be, they can just threaten to do this again. Hmm. And that gives them significant leverage. So this is not a problem that will go away. And yes, it is linked to Gaza, absolutely, but it goes way beyond that.
2: It's so important for us to understand the context of all of this as we see this conflict uh, in the Middle East. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thomas Junot is an associate professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. Now, the tensions in Yemen and the broader Middle East are happening against the backdrop of a critical legal case that was heard thousands of kilometers away at the International Court of Justice at The Hague in the Netherlands. South Africa says Israel's war in Gaza amounts to a genocide against the Palestinian people. Israel says that is absolutely not the case. The 15 judges of the ICJ heard arguments from both countries a few days ago. Molly Quell is the Hague correspondent for Courthouse News Services. Molly, hello to you. Hello, good morning. Molly, you were inside that courtroom at the Hague uh, when this case was heard Thursday and Friday. So can you just kind of take us inside? What was the atmosphere like?
0: Yeah, I've um, I've been covering the the ICJ for a long time now, and I think that this was uh, probably the busiest that um, that I've ever seen the court. And we were lined up very early in the morning to get through security. There were hundreds of protesters sort of from both sides of this conflict um, outside of the courtroom making a lot of noise that you could sometimes hear inside. Um, the Peace Palace is a very beautiful uh, old Art Deco building, and it's very austere. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's always a sort of impressive place to be where you sort of get to see these, you know, very brilliant legal minds kind of arguing um, this case about whether or not uh, Israel is is currently undertaking a genocide in Gaza.
2: There are 15 judges that sit uh, on the ICJ. This is the highest court of the United Nations. Broadly, give me a sense, like, who are these judges? How
0: are these selected? Well, so the, the court um, typically sits with 15 judges, but each country is allowed to have an ad hoc judge if there's no judge of their own nationality on the bench. So we actually did 17 on Thursday and Friday. Um, most of them are uh, quite, I guess, the maybe the polite way to say it is advanced in age. These are oftentimes very, you know, um, long-term legal scholars um, from varying legal traditions. Um, they're appointed by the UN General Assembly, Um, with some nod towards having diversity of nationality and kind of legal backgrounds, um, because, of course, different countries have kind of different legal traditions. Um, They sit for nine-year terms, and actually they will be changing over on the 6th of February. So the judges that have heard this request for provisional measures, which is what we heard Thursday and Friday, will not be the same panel of judges that sort of ultimately decide this case on the merits.
2: You mean the long term, the long term decision about whether or not Israel has committed. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'll talk about the provisional measures with you in just a sec. But I want to just before we get to that, talk about the arguments that were made. So there's two days of arguments. South Africa went on Thursday, Israel went on uh, Friday, South Africa charges this is the sort of the general charge that since the October 7th massacre in Israel by Hamas, that Israel has been committing a genocide in Gaza. And one of the lawyers for South Africa, Adila Hassim, made South Africa a case. She went, went on for hours on Thursday. Israel has subjected Gaza to what has been described as one of the heaviest conventional bombing campaigns in the history of modern warfare. Palestinians in Gaza are being killed by Israeli weaponry, and bombs from air, land, and sea. They are also at immediate risk of death by starvation, dehydration, and disease. This conduct renders essentials to life unobtainable. So Molly, um, what stood out for you in terms of South Africa's case? What did it point to to make its case that Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza?
0: well we what we heard on Thursday and Friday was actually this discussion about provisional measures the South Africa doesn't have to demonstrate that there's a genocide ongoing at the moment only that there's a plausible risk of one in order for the court to issue provisional measures so you you played this clip and in the clip there was a she made this discussion um, about she made this comment about how there's an imminent risk of starvation and dehydration and stuff and that's that's really what's at stake here um, for the judges issuing prov- provisional measures, whether or not there's like an imminent risk um, to the Palestinians sort of having their rights violated as defined by the Genocide Convention.
2: And so um, in terms of the provisional um, measures, these are temporary measures, South Africa is asking the court for what?
0: They have requested nine provisional measures. The first one is essentially for a ceasefire for Israel to stop cease all military activities in the Gaza Strip, and a whole host of other things, including allowing in humanitarian aid, allowing in um, international observers, um, asking Israel to report back to the court um, at irregular intervals to sort of update the court as to what sort of measures it's undertaking. Hmm. Um, some of these are pretty standard requests. This request for reporting, for example. Um, some of them, like the ceasefire, is is something that you, you don't see quite so often.
2: Hmm. Okay, let's talk about Israel's case, which it made on uh, Friday. Um, overall, Israel has steadfastly refuted the claims that South Africa um, has been making and making at the ICJ. It said that South Africa is distorting the facts. Israeli lawyer Tal Becker said South Africa presented a, quote, Sweeping counterfactual description, let's just listen to a bit of what he said.
1: But if there have been acts that may be characterized as genocidal, then they have been perpetrated against Israel. It is respectfully submitted that the application and request should be dismissed for what they are, a libel designed to deny Israel the right to defend itself according to the law. From the unprecedented terrorist onslaught it continues to face.
2: Molly, what stood out for you in terms of Israel's arguments at the court?
0: I think what was the most interesting part for me was that they were a little more reticent to use some of the quite brutal and awful video footage that Um, came out of the 7th of October. Um, What Israel needs to demonstrate to the court is that there is no plausible risk of genocide, that what they are doing in Gaza is legal, um, that they are adhering to international humanitarian law, um, that they are taking pains to not injure civilians, Um, And I think there was a lot of discussion on Thursday amongst, you know, kind of the press and court observers about how Israel would demonstrate this. And one sort of idea, of course, was that, well, if you show the brutality of October 7th, that this will show to the judges, right, that like this, this brutality may justify um, the the military action. And I think uh, Israel was quite restrained in what it used. um, And I think that that probably was a good move on their part, um, because oftentimes the judges at the court, they don't like this kind of bombastic rhetoric that maybe we've seen from Israeli officials, but they like to see our kind of straightforward legal arguments. And that's really what Israel focused on on Friday.
2: Okay, Molly, we'll leave it there. Um, I understand that the provisional measures rulings will come in the coming weeks, um, likely. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Molly Quell is the head correspondent for Courthouse News Service. Legal scholars around the world have been watching this case at the International Court of Justice closely. Michael Byers is among them. Michael is the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. Michael, good morning to you. Good morning. What is the ICJ's mandate?
1: The International Court of Justice was established in 1945 through the united nations charter uh, to resolve disputes between nation states and um, it uh, serves as a uh, a safety valve um, essentially allowing disputes to be channeled into a a legal venue um, where uh, legal arguments can be made and (laughs) judges can provide uh, uh, fair objective assessments as to who is right and who is Mm -hmm. wrong um, and it served the international community very well, and it's a very busy place. There are more than a dozen cases active before the court right now.
2: You said um, it's a place where nation-states can go, so only countries can be taken to the ICJ. So, for, for example, Israel couldn't make its case against Hamas at the ICJ. Uh,
1: that is correct. Uh, the uh, uh, Hamas is, is not a nation-state, and, uh, and so this particular court uh, cannot deal with Hamas. But there are other courts and tribunals that can, and the International Criminal Court, for instance, is actively investigating uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, in uh, in Israel and uh, in Gaza. um and uh, ultimately, we could see prosecutions uh, as well, also in The Hague, but in a separate building under a separate court.
2: so is the International Court of Justice the right place? For this case, South Africa um, charging that Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza. Is this is the ICJ the right place for this case to be
1: heard? It's the only place uh, for this case to be heard, and it is the right place uh, for this to be heard. Uh, and, and let's be absolutely clear. Um, uh, we don't know whether there's a genocide occurring in Gaza. And the fact that we don't know uh, means that uh, we... Uh, need uh, a, an entity uh, with authority, with the capacity to to examine the evidence, uh, to to actually uh, ask their turn whether there is in fact a, a genocide. And and when South Africa put their initial uh, document before the court, um, I read it through very carefully. <clears throat> And it's clear to me that you know there's a case to answer here the, the 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 question is a serious one um and genocide is a extraordinarily serious crime so so we're going to get an answer to that question um it, it's not a political question it, at this stage is a legal question mm-hmm. um and uh you know it doesn't uh, it doesn't help the situation uh to to put political weight on the court or to criticize south africa for bringing the case there is a question to answer, and and now the judges will decide.
2: Why do you think it was South Africa that decided to put forth this case?
1: Um, I think the main reason is that that South Africa uh, has an independent foreign policy; it it can't be pressured into to doing or not doing something. Um, It it also uh, regards itself as a a voice for the oppressed, uh, for the the countries of the global south, for for countries that, that were colonized um the african national congress which is the ruling party uh in south africa's democracy has a long history of support uh for uh palestinians that that goes back uh, half a century uh, and one has to remember here that that half a century ago the the anc um was uh branded as a terrorist group it was a, a revolutionary group fighting uh, against the apartheid uh white government of south africa and during the 1970s and 1980s uh one of the um most important uh, suppliers of uh of weapons to uh, to the apartheid government was the state of Israel mm-hmm. so there there is a history here um but but the key point is that there are really important questions to be answered concerning genocide and war crimes And South Africa has an independent foreign policy and the capacity to make its own decisions. And it's putting this question before the court on behalf of the international community.
2: There are, as you say, a number of cases in front of the ICJ. I want to ask you about one other in particular. This is um, the one between Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine complained to the court a couple of days after that war began in February of um, 2022 about Russia's claim that its invasion of Ukraine was done to prevent genocide, and the two countries have been squaring off at the ICJ um, ever since. Are there parallels that you see between that case and the one between South Africa and Israel?
1: Oh, oh, yes, absolutely, and uh, um, and and perhaps the most interesting one is that uh, uh, the court, uh, after the initial hearing um, on provisional measures, issued an order. Um, that that Russia cease hostilities uh, in Ukraine. Now, now orders of provisional measures, although rarely followed, are legally binding under the United Nations Charter. Um, so this has uh, affirmed that that Russia is uh, is behaving illegally in Ukraine. It has continued uh, in defiance of an order from the International Court of Justice. And I think it's highly likely that the, the same court will issue a very similar order uh, directed against Israel within the next couple of weeks. And uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has already indicated that the, the uh, 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 military action will continue even if an order is issued. But, but the existence of such an order, backed up by the Charter of the United Nations, will increase the political pressure on hmm. Israel. And it will increase the political pressure on, on allies of Israel. Uh, so President Joe Biden in the United States has has so far resisted uh, the call that, that he join in the call for a full ceasefire. And, and an order from the International Court of Justice might tip the balance in terms of his position. Um, and if the United States is calling for a, a full ceasefire, that will matter to Israel.
2: Except to say, Michael Byers, you know, As you said, look, in the Ukraine-Russia case, this provisional measure was made, I think it was in March of 2022. Here we are two years on, and that, that war rages on. So, I mean, what teeth does the ICJ have? I understand that the sort of ripple effects of a ruling can have political consequences, but it doesn't seem to me, from what I'm hearing from you, that it has a lot of enforcement power.
1: It doesn't have enforcement power. Um, but most laws don't need to be enforced. Most laws are complied with because of of a sense of of obligation, or or concern about reputation, or a desire to to maintain economic opportunity. Um, in the case of international law, to avoid sanctions, um, and and sometimes the 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 effects can be quite subtle. But I would suggest that we're already seeing some effects as a result of of South Africa bringing this case. The uh, Israeli lawyers were arguing uh, on Friday uh, that there was no need for a provisional um, measures order because the Israeli military was already scaling back its activities in in northern Gaza, uh, that more humanitarian aid was getting in, that, look, you don't need us to stop hostilities because we're already scaling back hostilities. Now, I can't say for sure that that is Israel is is pulling back a bit because it's worried about the International Court of Justice. But there is a certain coincidence here. The, the, the lawyers arguing in court are trying to avoid a binding order and the Israeli military is reducing the scale of the hostilities at the same time. That, to me, looks like the court action is already having some limited effect.
2: Hmm. I do want to ask you about... Canada's response, because it was on Friday that both the Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Melanie Jolie made their first public comments about um, this case, the South Africa case um, at the ICJ. And uh, Melanie Jolie said, quote, Canada's unwavering support for international law and the ICJ does not mean we accept the premise of the case brought by South Africa. When you heard that, Michael Byers, what did you think?
1: Oh, I thought those were wonderful um weasel words that that say absolutely nothing do not support the premise what does that mean um Canada's in a a curious position here it uh, it, it uh, has intervened in in two cases concerning uh, genocide Uh, that are before the International Court of Justice right now, one concerning Myanmar, the other concerning Russia. Um, It has taken a case together with the Netherlands against Syria uh, under the torture convention. Uh, It has a case against Iran concerning the the shooting down of that Ukrainian Airlines uh, plane a few years ago. Uh, So it's been using the court to to try to, to promote international justice and to stop genocide. Uh, at the same time obviously uh, the the Canadian government's under enormous pressure to to support Israel after the the atrocities of, of October 7th um, so it's trying to walk a line here Um and and let's be absolutely clear, intervening uh, in a case like this adds nothing to the legal proceedings. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the arguments will all be put to their full extent by extraordinarily able lawyers from South Africa and Israel. Uh, any country intervening is only doing so for domestic political reasons. That, I suspect, is why we've seen the United States uh, say that it objects to South Africa taking this case. Canada hasn't objected. It just doesn't support the premise of the case. Um, so, so really, I think we're staying out of it. And I think that's the right place for Canada to stay out of this. We do not need to be involved in this case. It would add nothing. Um, we can save our, our, our diplomatic influence for something that matters.
2: No matter what or when the ICJ makes its ruling, and, and help me just understand this before I ask you this question, the provisional ruling next in the coming weeks, the ruling on whether or not a genocide has been committed months or years, right?
1: Oh, it'll be several years before we get a, a final decision. Um and uh and and I would argue that the final decision is not what is important here. Uh, the important thing that's happening is that the eyes of the world are now on Israel and they're looking at it through the lens of the Genocide Convention. And the mere fact that there could be a ruling of genocide ultimately here is going to put political and moral pressure on Israel uh, to be more careful with regards to civilian lives. So, you know, South Africa um, may have other motives for taking this case, including its own domestic political motives. But by taking this case, it will be saving some lives. And I think we should be grateful to South Africa for taking the action.
2: And no matter what the court may rule, Michael, um, in terms of other future conflicts and future cases that may be brought before the ICJ, how important is this one?
1: Well, uh, there are many cases that that are uh, important. Um, will this establish uh, another uh, precedent? Uh, I don't know. Um, but a ruling of genocide uh, is something that, that that no country wants against it. No uh, no government, uh, no prime minister or president. And uh, uh, the fact that these things are possible will hopefully uh, prompt uh, people who, who are going to war uh, to tell their soldiers to be careful to not uh, engage in activities that that cause disproportionate risk to, to civilians. Uh, I'm not uh, on the ground in Gaza. Um, I, I don't know for sure uh, whether war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide have been committed, but it sure looks to me like Israel has chosen the high-intensity end of the military spectrum the last couple of months. And uh, I would like to see it uh, pull back a bit on the intensity And I I see it doing that now, and that's probably only because South Africa has put the question before the International Court of Justice.
2: Michael Byers. Could this be genocide? Go ahead.
1: It could be genocide. I don't know.
2: Okay, we'll wait to see what the court rules in the years to come. Michael Byers, I appreciate your analysis and perspective as well. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Byers is the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. The rise of things like chatbots and image generators has made AI more visible than ever, but it's all the product of work done over many decades by many great scientific minds experimenting quietly behind the scenes, including Fei-Fei Li. Her contributions to the field, and computer vision in particular, have led some to dub her the so-called godmother of AI. Feifei's a computer scientist at Stanford University, a former vice president at Google, and co director of the Stanford Institute for Human Centered Artificial Intelligence. She also recently wrote a memoir that is called The Worlds I See. Feifei Li, hello. Hello, Pia. Very nice to be here. I think for many of us, watching the recent explosion of AI has been um, kind of shocking, maybe quite disconcerting to a lot of us, it. al- almost like science fiction come to life. But what has it been like for you to watch things like generative chatbots really burst onto the scene?
4: Yeah, well, I have been in AI technology and research and the ecosystem for more more than two decades. Um, so this field continues to excite me, but obviously I feel a little different from the general public. But having said that, I do think uh, what happened over a little over a year ago was an inflection point. It was an uh, incredible inf- inflection point of this technology hitting the public in a very compelling way a uh, uh, virtual chat um, bot or, or agent that can talk to people, basically. And that has really opened the floodgate of possibilities and imagination and the social discourse and concerns and everything. So it does feel like an inflection point, and it's an important one.
2: Well, let me just say, hearing you say that you're excited by this, I use the word disconcerting, reassures me a little bit. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's help our listeners understand the foundational role that you played and what we are seeing today. So you were the driving force behind something called ImageNet, which has helped make computers, quote unquote, see. Can you explain what exactly that is?
4: Yeah so ImageDraw was a project that was uh finished at around uh 2009 it was a ginormous uh, training and benchmarking data set to push the field of computer vision, especially seeing objects um, forward. And uh, the moment, a historical milestone moment was ImageNet was the data set that empowered neural network algorithm or what people would call deep learning algorithm. And uh, by 2012, the Effect or the power of ImageNet would become very, uh, very visible when um, a group of Canadian uh, scientists, computer scientists, use ImageNet to train a very powerful neural network to show that computers can recognize objects in photos. But I think what made ImageNet uh, important in this journey was that. If we fast forward to now, everything we've seen in the progress of AI since you know, more than a decade ago is driven by data and algorithm together, and uh, including the latest uh, GPT and large language model technology. But what happened around 2009 is that um, that was not obvious at all. Data was very much a second-class citizen in the world of AI and machine learning research. Our systems more or less didn't work. And it was a huge bet to ask the field to do a paradigm shift to recognize the importance of data.
2: And so why is vision so key to making an intelligent computer?
4: Well, this is a great question, Pia. Well, let's think about intelligent animals in the world. Many animals are intelligent, but of course, humans, people, are the most intelligent animals we know, right? And think about our lives, that we do things by talking, by hearing, by touching, but we do a lot of things by seeing. We uh, navigate hmm. the world, we, uh, we manipulate objects, we communicate with each other, we entertain ourselves, we read, we, you know, we, we cross the street, we cook omelets, we, uh, we uh, type. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything we do almost involves vision. It is by far the largest sensory functionality in our brain. So this is why vision is part of the cornerstone of intelligence.
2: Yeah, it's always been that way, hasn't it? Like if I was an animal, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, I needed to, you know, see who my predators were, see see the food, you know, all those things. It was all very, exactly. it's, it's It's as
4: old as time. Exactly, and of course there are, you know, unfortunately there are people with visual impairments, and they, our brain is so powerful and elastic that it develops other compensation uh, methods. But by and large, in in also in animal world, vision is a very important uh, functionality.
2: Hmm. So I don't know, maybe this is getting a bit fo- philosophical, maybe not. But but can computers really see? Like I get animals, beings,
4: vision is important, but. Can computers see? Well, depending on what you define seeing, the, the general definition of seeing and perception is taking lights as input and figure out what they tell you, not just at the red, blue, green RGB value, not just shape, but everything from um, seeing the light and uh, and color all the way to, oh, I, right now I see my laptop in front of me on a wooden Table in a room of certain shape, if you define that as seeing absolutely computers see computers today take uh, imageries captured by cameras and sensors and turn that information into meaningful understanding and return it into the world either to people or to you know machine language to to continue to function, for example. Many of the newer cars that we drive and buy have lane detection, assistive driving, mm. and that's absolutely uh, the car seeing things to help humans. Um, you know, your, your, your photo album on your smartphone helps you to sort, right? I I can put grandmother's uh, name and then ask for the photo album to give me all the pictures of my grandma. And that is seeing. So yes, absolutely, Hmm. computers see a lot.
2: Okay, let me continue down this train of thought. Um, I know the mystery of intelligence was something that got you interested in this field. So let me ask you this, are computers really
4: intelligent? And again, I think intelligence is a very, very nuanced and loaded and multidimensional term. Some of the intelligence involves, like what we just said, interpreting information, seeing patterns, being able to uh, make decisions, being able to act. A lot of that is what artificial intelligence is about. The whole field is the science of making computers intelligent. So I would say absolutely computers are intelligent. Uh, It's intelligent through the mathematical models that we empower it with. But uh, I agree that that is a degree of intelligence we're able Hmm. to uh, endow our uh, machines with. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and right now
2: I'm speaking with Fei-Fei Li. She's a prominent computer scientist at Stanford University whose leading role in developing artificial intelligence has earned her the nickname, the godmother of AI. Let me ask you about your own personal story, because as I mentioned in our introduction, you recently wrote a memoir in which you recount your personal story a lot alongside a scientific one. You write about growing up in a middle-class family in China, then leaving everything behind to move to the United States. So, Fei-Fei Li, when did you know that science was your calling?
4: That's a great question. Um, part of the reason I wrote this book is actually to share that passion with my audience, and it's a love letter to science. So. I feel that um it was early when I was a little girl, maybe around pre-teenagehood, like around 10, 11 year old, I was already clearly more fascinated by nature and loved my uh STEM classes. And then throughout my teenagehood, even though I had a unique journey of being an immigrant, so across the continents, um that passion for science only increased as time goes.
2: You also write about um, facing tough economic circumstances. Your mom was in poor health when you were growing up. How did that context play into what you wanted to do with this passion that you're talking about, your passion for science?
4: So this is the interesting thing, Pia. Um, I appreciate that you calling out this experience, but what I appreciate even more so is now getting my readers to tell me how much they see their own journey and especially their parents' journey in uh, uh, of my young readers, uh, that my story as an immigrant going from a home country to a new home country and plunged into much tougher socioeconomical, cultural challenges is actually a universal story and it's a story that many people share. But it's really the combination of that passion, undying passion, as well as incredible support and mentorship of people around me.
2: You're so right that so many um, immigrants, I'm a kid of immigrants, can see, I can see my parents in your story. And so many people have that shared experience um, moving halfway around the world. And within, okay, so you've got this passion for science, you got all this support. You, you, you could have gone into, I don't know, more traditional fields and, you know, biology, physics, chemistry, something like that. Computer vision was still really in the realm of science fiction when you were making these sacrifices and pursuing a career in this. Why did you think this was a field worth putting all of you into.
4: I actually think science in its purest form is driven by curiosity, is driven by this uh, irrational almost just just love of pursuing the unknown. And uh, I don't want to make it more complicated than that. I did not go hmm. into AI or computer vision calculating if this were a uh, famous field if this were a fashion, if this might, you know, 20 years later become the driving force of uh, our future, none of these even existed um, in in my head. I went in because I was curious. I was deeply, deeply curious about how the brain works and can we make computer brains that work in similar ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, I find that so interesting because As you said, look, the voice in my head was saying, stick with it. But computer vision was so new. um, When you started creating ImageNet, there were people saying, come on, Fei-Fei, this this is impractical. This isn't going to
4: work. This is too big of a leap. That's true. <laughs> I did and some of them are my fellow um scientists and I don't think that was any ill intention. Scientific progress is a lot of trial and error and the scientists as friends and colleagues are the first ones to critique each other. So that hypothesis that I had that that passion conviction of you know, data-driven AI was a bold idea. It was a more or less uh, very maverick, and uh, being questioned was completely normal. I guess the question for me was, now that you're being questioned and challenged, what do you do with it, right? And hmm. uh, luckily, I persevered and with my students and collaborators.
2: You mentioned that um, we're sort of at an inflection point, or that an inflection point was hit last year in in 2023. And you also said, I'm still excited by this. And I said that that made me feel good. It reassured me. At the same time, we've seen people... quite concerned about the future with AI. Your longtime peer, um, Jeffrey Hinton, Canadian University of Toronto professor who left Google, he and others have signed an open letter calling for a pause in AI experiments because they fear where this could all lead for us as humans. Do do you share those concerns?
4: Yeah, actually just a couple of months ago I was in Toronto and having a great time talking to Professor Hinton both privately and publicly. Uh, I want to say so i'm absolutely aware of the anxiety of a new technology like ai brings and and i feel that's very very justified in terms of different reactions to a to a new technology i also on the specific concern about machines being sentient and that leads to an existential crisis of humanity. I respect that, especially I live in a university where all kinds of ideas are being explored and debated, and it's almost the job of the intellectual, you know, scholars to be Foreseeing possibilities they they might not materialize, but having that debate, having that uh, discourse, is totally respectful and healthy. Having said that, as someone who has been working AI, especially human centered AI, for so many years now, I think the concern I have are much more pressing and urgent on social risks. And these are more, more concrete social risks, such as the impact of mis and disinformation on our, uh, especially democracy, the bias and, uh, copyright and IP infringement of data, the, the job shift, you know, for it's, it's, it's a very complex picture when it comes to AI's impact in, in jobs. And all this are, are much more real, much more um, concrete, and much more urgent social risks, and some of them might even turn into catastrophic social risks. You know, you're in journalism. You you think about this from all angles, from disinformation to misinformation, from the way you know creator economy is being impacted. It has both um, the good and the bad and the the messy, right? So. So I think they're real. And so you have advised
2: U.S. President Joe Biden on how to regulate AI. Of course, Canada, too, is grappling with its own AI regulation. So what would you tell lawmakers? What did you tell the president? What What would you tell Canadian lawmakers?
4: Well, first of all, I actually... Uh don't prefer the word regulate per se because policy making is more complex and multidimensional than just regulation regulation to me Puts more emphasis on the guardrails, which is important. We can talk about it, but when I have my dialogue with lawmakers and uh, president biden and and uh, politicians policymakers, I tend to emphasize on the fuller landscape of policy making about AI, for example, with President biden um, the the most important message I have right now four lawmakers, maybe for Canadian uh, governments too, but I think Canadian governments are doing, is doing a fantastic job actually, is a public sector AI uh, investment to adapt a moonshot mentality for public uh, sector AI investment because it is so important to have a healthy AI ecosystem where not only we have companies pursuing business opportunities and commercialization of this technology, but we have public sector scholars, researchers, teachers, uh, uh, thought leaders to use AI for creating public goods from Hmm. climate solutions to discovering cure for rare diseases. To you know, um, better ways of creating arts and music. So that's part of policy making. On the regulatory side, I think we should be very, very thoughtful. This is a very, very horizontal new technology, and humanity has gone through this multiple times, and we have always survived. But we need to learn our lessons. We should. support new technology to make our lives better, but we should also, in places where rubber meets the road, when we have high stake and critical situations like human lives, like financial transactions, like environment, we should put guardrails. So all this should be done in a thoughtful way, in a nuanced way, not in just one or two hyped sentences. You said moonshot
2: mentality this is something you've also said to the US president what does that mean moonshot mentality
4: is that the moonshot mentality to me is the ambition scale scope of the public sector investment for ai for example to be very concrete uh stanford human center ai institute which i co-founded and lead today uh has been at the forefront of leading the advocacy of national research uh, cloud for AI research. And it's because AI is a very expensive technology. In order to do AI, do AI for climate, do AI for healthcare, do AI for robotics, do AI for whatever, we need compute resources. These are chips as well as data. And individual universities are now falling more and more behind compared to the big tech company investment in AI. So, you know, we're lacking opportunity to do some more exciting work. And a national AI research cloud and data repository can really uh, juvenate that ecosystem.
2: I understand That you watched the movie Oppenheimer with your family and of course won the Golden Globe for drama motion picture just last weekend. And I'm bringing it up because I also understand that you feel that there might be some parallels um, uh, from from the plot of Oppenheimer to what we're talking about today, which is AI. And I'm just wondering if you could draw that parallel for me
4: maybe a little less than a 100 years ago, but about that time that modern physics was making breakthroughs from atomic physics to, you know, high energy physics to quantum physics, and all that was really changing a lot of the the world, of course, in this specific case, uh, eventually atomic physics was weaponized. But AI is also a hundred years later, uh, very similar in uh, compared to modern physics, which is it's becoming very, very powerful. It's actually even more horizontal than modern physics in the way that it can impact every single business through the, the AI technology. And as scientists, we are simultaneously grappling with the excitement of the technology, but also its social impact and personal responsibility. And this is where Oppenheimer, as a movie, as well as a person... Um, you know, reminds us of the time we live in. I personally Mm. believe a scientist, just like all citizens of a society, has responsibility for how we are developing our technology, how we're communicating our technology, and how we are participating in the human-centered future or or the governance Mm. of our technology.
2: Just before I let you go, I want to ask you about someone else that you write about in your memoir. This is Albert Einstein, a real hero of yours. And as you said, I started out studying physics and love the fact that Princeton University, your alma mater, um, was also his home as a scholar. I just wondered, do you you think when you think of your hero, like what would he make of all of this? What do you think he'd make of AI as, as it begins to really take further root in our world?
4: That's such a wonderful question. No one has asked me that. Um, And there are many reasons I love about Albert Einstein. Of course, he is one of the most brilliant scientists, imaginative scientists of our whole, you know, human history. But one of the reasons I really love about him is uh, he is simultaneously a scientist and a humanist. He has a deep compassion for humanity and being a Jew himself, I think, give him an incredible insight as well. And I think if he were to be alive today looking at AI, I think he would be possibly simultaneously extremely intrigued by the power of this technology and the, the scientific principles behind it, as well as its human impact. I would love to think, you know, at least um, for, for, for self selfish reason, that he would agree with my conviction that this technology should be rooted in a human-centeredness, that we need to uh, be mindful of how we develop as well as deploy and govern this technology.
2: I've so enjoyed listening to you and getting to know a little bit more about you, uh, Fei-Fei. You're such an important figure in um, the development of AI. I appreciate you making time for us.
4: Thank you, Pia. I really enjoyed our conversation.
2: Fei-Fei Li is a computer scientist renowned for her work in the field of artificial intelligence. Her memoir is called The World's I See. Artificial intelligence is poised to radically change our lives someday. But what you may not realize is how much it already has especially if you're looking for a job. Hilke Shelman says AI may not be replacing workers en masse, at least not yet, but that it is doing a lot of the work of bosses and hiring managers today. Hilke is an investigative journalist and author of a new book called The Algorithm, How AI Decides Who Gets Hired, Monitored, Promoted, and Fired, and Why We Need to Fight Back Now. Hilke,
5: Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me.
2: So we'll get into all of what I just suggested there, the monitoring, the hiring, the promotion, the firing. But before we do all that, let's just talk about your kind of foray into AI and looking at employment. This began a few years ago when you were in a, a Lyft, and I don't mean an elevator. I mean, like, for people who don't know, Lyft is a company similar to Uber. And you started talking with the driver, as I understand it. So so what was that conversation that's led you to today?
5: Yeah. Um, so this was like in late 2017. I barely heard about AI, to be honest. Um, and I asked him, like, how are you doing? And, and he was like, oh, I had kind of a weird day. And, you know, I'm a journalist. So I was like, what? You had a weird day? <laughs> hey, tell me more about it, um, you know. <laughs> and he was like, "Okay, nosy lady." Um, and so he was actually very kind and told me that he had applied for a baggage handler position at a local airport, and that a robot called him and asked him three questions on his phone. So, of course, it wasn't a robot, right? It was like pre-recorded questions. But I had never heard of that, and I was like, "What?" robot job interviews and uh noted it down and and then kind of maybe maybe forgot about it for a couple of months until i went to um, an artificial intelligence um conference um a few months later and there was a um somebody who had just left the regulator of work in the United States, the EOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And she talked about that companies use AI to sort of uh, very basic AI to go through people's calendars and understand how often employees are absent. She was really worried about people with disabilities and, and mothers who have much higher absentee rates and that they would be penalized for this. And I was like, wow, this is like a real change on the ground. And we should be talking about this.
2: So let me just say that in 2024, uh, in reading your book and just hearing the beginning of what you said, my jaw is kind of on the ground, right? I didn't know any of this was happening. So you are early to the party, if I can put it that way, finding this stuff out in 2017, 2018. A lot of what we're about to talk about, I think, will surprise a lot of people. So... Let's start with kind of where a job might start, which you said is like this driver in the car, he wants to get a new job. Lots of people uh-huh. out there looking for work. How widespread is the use of AI in hiring today?
5: Yeah. It's probably more widespread than we all think of it. So we know that 99% of Fortune 500 companies use AI in their hiring funnel. If today, uh, you know, you're a job applicant, you sent your resume or your application to a job platform, be it like LinkedIn or Monster or Indeed or, you know, any of those They all use AI. If you send it to a large company, even on their website, they probably use an applicant tracking system. Um, All of them really from the large companies have AI built in that you can turn on and off. It's mostly widespread in what they call high turnover uh, jobs, hourly jobs in retail, fast food. Uh, We see it a lot for recent college graduates. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm also a journalism professor at NYU. All of my students know all of these companies. Their parents have never heard of them because it's sort of a really generational divide.
2: Yeah, I'm clearly in the parents' uh, generation on this one
5: because
2: (laughs) this is just, what do you mean a robot? Like. A uh, AI-generated robot calls me and does a one-way interview. Okay, tell me this, and I, I'm, I'm guessing it's different for different companies, but I've uploaded my um, resume, I've applied, and so then some kind of AI sort of looks through this. What is an AI algorithm actually looking for
5: when it scans thousands of resumes? Mm-hmm. So some tools are trained based on resumes of people who've been successful. So basically, probably the people that have applied to a job and they've been hired. So, you know, the the tool gets those thousands of resumes and figures out, okay, what are the words on these resumes that these people have in common? And then every applicant gets compared to that. So we don't actually know what people who were successful in the job had on their resume, right? So I can't Tell you that exactly. Um, one good indication is what I always tell people, and I've heard from sort of experts in the field is like have about 60 to 80 percent of the keywords in the job description have that reflected in your resume. Um, so, the, so the tool picks that up. You don't want hundred percent because then the tool thinks you just replicated the, the job description, right? And it just says <laughs> like, oh, this is a carbon copy and puts it on the no pile, but 60, 80%. And there's a couple of uh, online resume screeners where you can upload the job description in your resume, and it will tell you what probably the most AI tools will say. You have like 80% overlap. Um, So that probably puts you on the yes pile. You see I say a lot of probable because we don't actually know how the individual tools are um, calibrated. And herein lies maybe some of the anxiety a lot of uh, job applicants have, but also where experts feel like, hmm, we don't always know how these tools work. So that gives us a little pause. Okay.
2: Are you saying, for example, um, that it is possible or probable that if I apply for a job in a company where there's like six guys already named Peter and my name is and, uh, I don't know, four out of the six guys play tennis and I do musical theatre, that I might be weeded out by the AI because my name's not Peter and I don't play tennis?
5: Yes. Um, Wow. So uh, one of my sources, John Scott, um, he runs an assessment company and he often gets brought in by companies who want to test new tools. So this company was like running this tool already, uh, brought Scott in to, to check it, and he found... That in one of the tools, the name Thomas was a predictor of success and uh, specific um, hobbies that people had, like playing basketball or baseball, biking. There were other keywords that predicted success. Syria, Canada. You know, when I talk to lawyers, obviously, first of all, we know that uh, the name Thomas doesn't qualify you for. Any job, right? It's all about the skills. Um, So a human would know that. The unfortunate thing is that an AI tool wouldn't, right? Because obviously it has no cognitive thinking skills. It looks at statistical patterns. So maybe there were like 10 Thomases in the pool of current employees that are successful. So it just uh, found that as an indicator of success. So herein lies a problem. And I think that's why we need to be really careful with these tools because if I apply for a job, I you know, most of us really care. It's a high stake scenario, right? We are nervous because the job could mean that I could put food on the table and have shelter, but also like, you know, a lot of my identity is connected to a job. So I care about that. So if I don't get the job, because, you know, I don't have the right qualifications, I get it. But if it's because my name isn't Thomas, I would be really pissed and upset. And I don't think companies would want that either. But we see these problems again and again. And that, is not fair. And some of it can point to structural discrimination, right? Like another lawyer I talked to, he found that a resume screener had given more points to people who had the word baseball on their resume and had given less points to people who had the word softball on their resume. That is clearly connected to gender, right? Like men often play baseball, women play softball. So if you put that on your resume, you would have discriminated against women. And you know, and the scale is kind of unprecedented, right? Some large companies get millions, millions of applications a year. So if you run one algorithm over like three million resumes, you would like discriminate potentially against so many thousands of women. Wow. Also, the Hilkas and Pias are not going to do well on the AI.
2: Not at <laughs> <With> all. Our- <laughs> we got to switch our names, my friend. Um, um, let us talk about Amazon, because as I understand it, Amazon had developed um, this kind of resume scanning tool, but it eventually abandoned. And I think it was back in 2018. Why did it dump it?
5: Yeah. So um, Amazon had wanted, wanted to do the same thing, right? They got too many applications They wanted a tool that will make sense out of all of the resumes and give them a beautiful, small yes pile of people they should call for an interview. Um, so they trained it on, on, on people that were at... Amazon and over time the tool um, started doing the same thing um, it started discriminating against uh, women and uh, downgraded folks who had the word woman or women on their resumes. Um, so actually Amazon tried to fix it, couldn't fix it, and then they abandoned it. and they talked about it and got a lot of flack for it. but that is one of the you know one of the large companies that we've seen who has actually a lot of technology, who actually couldn't solve the problem themselves.
2: And yet, so many other companies are still using this, right? They're still using this kind of scanning algorithm. Yes. Why? If, if, if look, it's not just Amazon, there have been other, there's people like you saying, this isn't really working. This isn't giving you your best pool of candidates. Why are companies still using this?
5: Yeah. So, I should say, companies are also know that their AI hiring tools reject qualified candidates. We have, uh, surveys from um, academics that actually talk to company executives have said we we know this is a problem, but the com- companies feel so inundated um, by applications that they want a technological tool, and the vendors promise that their tool will save money, will save labor costs, and will find the best qualified candidates. And the tools actually do save money. They make hiring much faster. They uh, decrease labor cost. So on that part, like, you know, the tools work, um, but do they find the most qualified candidates? We don't really have any evidence of that. But I think a lot of times companies just want this, like, large pool of people to be uh, just smaller, much more handable for humans to actually do the hiring. Hmm.
2: If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia I and I'm speaking with journalist Hilka Shelman about how artificial intelligence is already influencing how people get hired and fired. Okay, let's pretend like I get through the first step, which is I my resume does get through this AI filter. Mm-hmm. So then it's mm-hmm. time for, I would presume, my job interview. In the quote-unquote <laughs> olden days, a human would call me up. I would show up at their office. They would ask me some questions. I would go home and feel bad that I didn't do all that I thought I could do, probably. That's not how it works anymore, right? You write about the rise of one-way video interviews. You put yourself through some of these for your own research. Tell me about that.
5: Yeah, I did. I did. I was a little nervous, to be honest. Uh, you know, I was like, "Well, wow, I'm talking to the camera and I know an AI is assessing me and my facial expressions and the words that I use, and it's finding my personality traits and, and who I am. And, you know, I felt... It felt a little bit invasive um, and, you know, it was a little bit uh, nervous to do it. When I did it, it was just kind of awkward um, because, you know, you sit at home, you get these pre-recorded questions on your computer and you basically try to look into the green dot of your camera and 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 record yourself and sound like upbeat and, and happy and excited about the company, even though you're not really talking to anyone, and you just hope that uh, the AI will predict that you will be successful, right? And the question is, is is sort of like uh, my facial expressions? If that is being predicted upon, what does my facial expressions have to do with the job, right? And then the second question is like, are my facial expressions actually meaningful? Like, if I smile in a job interview, am I really? happy? Mm. Like I smile a lot in a job interview because I'm nervous and I'm, you know, trying to make, make a connection uh, with someone, but am I truly happy? No, I'm nervous, um, right? So there's really no good solid science here un- underneath some of these things. And I think that's why they're really questionable. And even on a technical level, right? Like um, in, in video interviews, the AI doesn't predict on on the audio, it predicts on a transcription. So there's a speech to text transcription tool underlying it. That uh, writes out the words that I say. So, what if I have an accent? Hmm. What if I have a speech impairment? Right? Like we know that these transcription tools that are also, uh, you know, the underlying technology of maybe like Echoes and Alexas, um, they don't work as well for for people with accents or dialects and and people with speech impairments.
2: To that point, so you did the you did some experiments. Um, so the AI is using facial analysis, and as you say, just because I'm smiling doesn't mean I'm happy. But it also does is voice recognition. Uh, stuff, right? And so you you did one. Um, tell, <laughs> just kind of walk us through what happened on that one.
5: Yeah. Um, so I did a test with, an AI tool that was marketed to uh, mostly companies in the West saying, if you want to hire call center employees uh, in the global South, you really need to have people who speak English really well, right? That's like a key component. Um, so the AI was going to uh, find out how well one speaks English. So I did it once speaking English, and I got an 8.5 out of nine English competent. Excellent. Um, I thought so too. Actually, I was <laughs> kind of proud because English is my second language. Mm-hmm. German is my first language. So I I was like, wow, I guess the English classes, they, they worked out in school. So then I thought, um, you know, I thought about people who maybe have a speech impairment or something. And, and when I had co- talked to vendors before, they said, oh, well, if people have a speech impairment, or they're silent, or they speak a different language, the tool would notice that and send an error message. So I was like, great, let's test it. So I spoke to the tool in German. And I thought I would just get an error message, right? Because it's like, you know, gobbly gobbly do. And I was surprised when I got an email and I scored a six out of nine English competent. Hmm. And I was like, wow, I didn't even speak a word of English, but I'm competent uh, in English while I'm speaking German. So those are the things that I think I would actually tell folks in HR, like test some of these tools that you're trying to use for hiring people. Um, because if they break as easily as, you know, me just speaking German to them, um, you know, it's really it's a question then, If it can't even recognize what language you speak, how can it really make an assumption that anyone is competent in English, right? Like, does this tool really work? That's what I'm trying to say. Like, some of these methods here are just so scientifically unsound that we really have to think about this if we want to use this on job applicants.
2: So for some of our listeners, they might be thinking, well, this, you know, this happens, I don't know, somewhere else. But... Voice analysis is something that some federal government departments here in Canada have started incorporating into their hiring processes. In a recent interview, Treasury Board President Anita Anand said Ottawa will work to make sure AI doesn't discriminate against potential hires. But Hilka, how easy is it to prevent discrimination with the tools that are readily available
5: today? I mean, it's incredibly hard to prevent discrimination because um, you know what some companies do is they they check is like uh, do women and men sort of go through the tool at similar rates and, and, and people of different races. But it, I've never seen a company look at like, did black women go through this assessment tool at the same rate as uh, white men? Because that's where we in the intersection of people's identities. We often see the real problems coming through. Um, and actually there is no science that says the intonation of your voice is predictive Of success in the job. So that should really give us pause if we should use those kinds of tools uh, for hiring. So we've seen it in like, uh, you know, governments are slower than the private sector to um, start using these tools, but we've also seen Mm -hmm. it in the US government using some of these tools, and we, we know so very little about it. So we need more transparency.
2: You know, only a few years ago, um, I was doing interviews uh, about, and I mean journalistic interviews, about how humans discriminate uh, when, you know, they get a pile of resumes and a name like Pia I might be like, oh, that sounds a little bit weird. Maybe their English isn't so good. Are, you know, are they female, male? And I kind of got in the rejection pile. We were talking about human error. But what I'm yeah. hearing from you, Hilka, is like AI also ha- may have bias that. Is you know robotic bias, not human bias well,
5: AI may have bias, but we also like building in the human bias on top of that, um, right because we're using uh, the human bias for, for example, at Amazon, right because there has been a gender disparity. there are more men working at Amazon than than women. That's why there were more men in that resume pile. Um, that's why their preferences were, were picked up by, their, by the algorithm. And that's why people with the word woman or women on their resume, they were statistically less likely to be hired by Amazon because statistically, historically, tech companies have hired women than women. So we see the human biases get replicated into AI. We see machine bias coming in. Um, so there's a whole, a whole lot of bias in these machines that we have to work very, very hard to find and uh, pull out and make maybe actually kind of abandon some of these tools. So I'm trying to make the point we shouldn't go back to human hiring because human hiring is also incredibly biased. The damage one human hiring manager can inflict on on, on applicants is tragic for the people but you know a little less than an algorithm that maybe can you know run over 3, three million applicants. So we need technology to go through all of these applications. Great, but let's build technology that, that works. Let's not take the the sins of the past, the biases of the past, and build them again into the tool without looking and now make it into objective bias, right? Let's not have a ranking uh, based on uh, potentially biased uh, proxies and and problems, right? And then hire people based on that. Let's actually have a conversation, like what works in hiring and how should we build these tools that work? And I think we're not quite there yet, actually. You
2: know, when I was speaking with Fei-Fei Li about her pioneering work, which made so So much of what we're talking about now possible. Her main message or one of them is that artificial intelligence must be human centered um, as we move forward. So what when you hear that Hilka? what does that mean to you.
5: Yeah, I I, I do think that we need to have humans in the loop and that we have humans testing these HR tools. Uh, The humans that build these tools on on the vendor side need exactly to know, like, what do these tools actually uh, predict upon? Uh, We also need the HR people to really closely look, how does this tool work? And especially over time, HR departments often buy these tools because they want less work, right? They don't want more monitoring, more in-depth work, training people to actually oversee these tools But we need to do a whole lot more to um, make sure that we hire based on merit and fairness and not leave people who have been uh, traditionally excluded and, and people maybe with disabilities and speech impairments and have them even more rejected, right? They're already on the fringes of the labor market.
2: I'm thinking about sending my resume out there, Hilka. So if I have to dust it off. Thinking, okay, Send it I'm,
5: to me. I'll, I'll run it through some online screeners.
2: Well, I'm like, I'm not going to put I'm a woman. I'm not going to put that I have any interest because, Lord, if I say softball instead of baseball, that might weep me out. I guess my point is, is like, after listening to you, I think people might feel slightly daunted and paralyzed about what they should put on a resume, when they're looking for work, applying for jobs online,
5: what's your advice to them? Yeah. So we don't know exactly what every, every company uses, but I can speak in general, like how these tools work best. So the traditional advice has been stand out, you know, do this like beautiful resume with these colors and images. No, 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 none of that anymore. (laughs) Make it machine readable, right? Like make it like concise, short, Bullet points. Machines love bullet points. Like no double columns. Like it has to, uh, the machine has to ingest the text into the right parts of the forms where it's going to be used by the AI, right? So make it machine readable, short sentences, like list your licenses, your accomplishments. very clear language. I also... uh, Suggest if you want to impress a human, if you have an in-person interview, like you can bring the beautiful looking resume, right? But like for the machine, for the first few uh, rounds of of hiring, uh, make it machine readable, make it as boring, (laughs) as boring looking as you can uh, and and get it through the the machine. Use maybe uh, an, an online resume screener where you make sure that you have the appropriate amount of keywords reflected, um, and and all all those kinds of things.
2: In other words, pretend your computer is a 1970s typewriter and just <laughs> write a yes. very basic text.
5: Yes, oh, write yes. a ba- very yeah. basic text. Um, I mean, what we've seen a little bit um, is that I think job applicants Getting a little bit of, of of power back because they feel generative AI, um, you know, for for example, Chat GPT can be really helpful in writing a cover letter, polishing your resume, um, because you know that's a machine who who
2: reads it and Wait, hand. wait, wait! Are you saying I should write my cover letter using Chat GPT? So when Chat
5: GPT receives it and is doing the algorithm, it likes what it sees? You know, we've seen now job applicants online, you know, sort of joke about they they all know that um, you know a lot of people. People know that a lot of uh, big companies use AI, so they feel like, well, I'm going to use ChatGPT for my cover letter. May the best AI win, right? It's AI (laughs) against AI. (laughs)
4: Um,
5: um, And I think ChatGPT writes pretty good. Cover letters uh, and polishes your resume. Some job seekers also use it to understand, like, what are the most common job interview questions. Some of them maybe even use it to get some uh, ideas for answers. You know, if you're being asked, like, what are your strengths and weaknesses? I think ChatGPT might have really good answers for you to um, uh, start practicing. Use AI to beat AI. <laughs> Hack the
2: system, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's Gain the yeah. system. Uh, listen, this has been extraordinarily um, eye-opening uh, conversation, and um, I, I'm just gobsmacked by how quickly the world seemingly has changed, at least uh, when it comes yeah. to finding a yeah. job. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks, Ilka. appreciate your time so much. Thank you, Pierre. Hilke Shellman is an investigative journalist and author of The Algorithm. All right, that is it for us this week here on the Sunday Magazine. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killett, Pete Mitten, and Ronde Williams. We had additional help this week from studio director Karen Marley. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia I Thank you so very much for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday.